whatever your highest value is, is your identity revolves around it and your epistemological knowledge is maximized around it. So you tend to filter your reality according to that highest value. And whatever information you're perceiving, it's filtered through and you grab anything that's gonna help you fulfill whatever that is. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I feel like it's been a while. I've been enjoying some downtime with my family and um, just chilling out, really reconnecting with uh, my amazing little humans. But I'll tell you, the amazing content on the podcast isn't slowing down now. And as we continue to search the world for the greatest guests, I came back to this previous guest. He's been on the Go Show twice, and he is probably still one of, if not the most intriguing guests, one of the most intriguing conversations I've ever had. And I still come back to using his principles and teaching his principles, at least the best I'm capable. And I want to learn as much as I possibly can from this man, so much that I'm actually taking another one of his courses. This one will be my third this coming weekend. I'm taking his financial mastery course. Dr. John Martini joins me for the third time on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Dr. Martini, if you don't know who he is, is considered one of the world's leading authorities on human behavior and personal development. He's the founder of the Demartini Institute, a private research and educational organization with over 72 courses, all developed by him personally on multiple aspects of human development. So he has trademark methodologies in human development, something called the Demartini Method, the Demartini Value Determination System. Um, this is the culmination of over 47 years of cross-disciplinary research. This guy is just an absolute wealth of information. Specific talking points from today's podcast, we talk a lot about creating a proactive lifestyle, plus maximizing productivity and effectiveness, and ultimately how he works at the level of the nervous system to make this happen. We talk about defining priorities and values and living in accordance with them. We talk about how identity revolves around values. So if you don't know your values, I highly suggest you listen up and how perception ultimately is also filtered through our values. We talk about something he calls inner governance governance versus outer influence. We talk about living in our passions and values and how empowering that is and how this specifically relates to high performance. So, so many of us are subjected to things like trauma in our childhood or maybe living outside of our true identity because of trying to meet other people's expectations and preventing you from ultimately discovering your passions and losing your empowerment, right? This disempowerment victim mindset that seems just so rampant in our world today. This, as always, is nothing short of a mind-blowing podcast. So without further ado from me, I hope you enjoy the podcast with Dr. John DiMartini. Welcome to the show, Dr. John DiMartini. This is your third time on the show. The last time we spoke, we got to meet in person in Houston, which was uh, was amazing for me. You're uh, a brilliant, brilliant leader in our world, and the world needs to know about, more of the world needs to know about you. I know so many people do, and uh, I hope to be able to spread your message, and I hope you continue to do what you do. I know you'll never stop. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you for having me again. You're enjoying your beautiful ship in Southampton in the UK. Uh, sailing around the world and doing what you love and, and living in your passion is something that you are an advocate of. And you, when I, when I visited you and, and when I've taken your courses online, 
you spoke about um, filling your day with high priority tasks that inspire you or you will or they will be filled with low priority tasks that don't. And that's not an exact quote, but somewhere along those lines, you use that quote. And that's so impactful. And I think as you spoke about in this recent YouTube video, I mentioned um, if people aren't filling their day with high priority tasks that they're passionate about, they tend to live out of more of an amygdala-based reality and meaning fight or flight, adrenaline-driven, um, reactive lifestyle rather than proactive and creating a lifestyle. You, you become reactive and, and a victim to life. And I would love it if you could share that such important message with our audience. And I think that that's the foundation of all change in my mind. Oh, and this is a 12-hour uh, presentation? <laughs> well, I've, I've got until next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, well, every human being lives moment by moment by and through a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most to least important in their life. And that set of values is fingers, fingerprint specific to them. No two people have the exact same set of priorities or values. And some people have a higher value on their business or maybe their education or maybe their wealth building, or maybe their family, or maybe their social influence, or maybe their physical fitness, or maybe their spiritual quest. And none of them are right or wrong for what their values are, but whatever is highest on their list of values is what they're pursuing. The hierarchy of your values dictates your destiny. It dictates how you perceive, decide, and act. All of human behavior is derived from that. So knowing what your hierarchy of values are, in my opinion, is one of the cornerstones of having a fulfilled life. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book, The Values Factor, for that reason. Now, whatever this highest value is, you are spontaneously inspired from within to fulfill it. But as you go down the list of values to lower values, they become more extrinsically driven, which means you need a motivation to keep you focused on them. Everybody, I want to bring you a special message from our amazing sponsors. This is a deal you've never heard before, so listen up. Mass Zymes are coming at you free. Our amazing friends at Buy Optimizers are hooking you up with a summer deal, no strings attached, while supplies last, pay the shipping, they're going to send you the best digestive enzymes on the planet, no cost to you. So limit one per household. Um, so if you've never tried these enzymes or if you've never tried uh, enzymes, period, um, this is a great chance to take advantage of this very limited time offer. Now, this is something that I use on an ongoing basis. I've been using Mastzymes for, gosh, it's got to be four or five years now. And this is something that I almost never leave home without. But I'm going to be consuming protein in any form, whether that be whey protein or collagen protein or eggs or animal products, I want to make sure that my digestion is optimized, especially being a man over 40 or a woman over 40 for that matter, anywhere over the age of 35 is very likely to have some negative effect on their digestive tract simply from being a, an existent partner, an existent human in current modern society, right? There's a lot of toxins. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of things that are potentially slowing down the body's ability to digest. So by throwing in two to three enzymes, mastzymes, with every protein meal, I've massively increased my ability to digest, absorb, and assimilate high-quality protein. So rather than having gas, bloating, cramping, indigestion, 
I now get really, really great absorption from the high quality protein that I'm putting in. So I don't ultimately have expensive stool. I'm a mega fan of Bioptimizers. They're one of the few supplement companies with the best formulations and the highest quality ingredients. And ultimately, their products work. That's why they keep coming back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast because our users, our listeners support the product. I support the product. And ultimately, they work. So guys, if you want to take advantage of this amazing offer, head over to masszymes.com slash muscle free. All one word. Listen up. Masszymes, M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com slash muscle free. All one word. M-U-S-C-L-E-F-E-R-E-E. Muscle free. All one word. Go take advantage of it. Jump on it. Use this product. Let me know what you think. I hope they continue to sponsor the podcast forever because truly I'm a fan and I know you'll be too. Back to our show. You think of a young boy who loves video games. He spontaneously does his video games. But to do his chores, his homework, clean his room, his mom or dad has to use punishment if they do it, reward if they reward if they do it, punishment if they don't kind of thing. An external motivation. And external motivation is a symptom of disengagement, not a solution for human beings. So I'm not a motivational speaker. I try to educate people on how to live inspired and meaningful and purposeful life by priority. Now, whatever this highest priority is, whenever you do set sail as captain of your ship, master of your fate, direct it in that direction, and you have an aligned goal with that, either consciously or unconsciously. You excel and you accelerate incrementally and build momentum and a greater achievement because we're disciplined, reliable, and focused in that area. And we tend to walk our talk in that area. And the second we achieve something, which we do because of perseverance, we tend to want to set goals that are even greater. So we tend to expand our space and time horizons whenever we're pursuing what's really valuable to us. But when they're trying to do something low on our values, which usually is a result of trying to envy somebody else and imitate somebody else and inject somebody else's values in our life and try to be somebody we're not inauthentically. We frustrate, procrastinate, hesitate because we keep doing something. We need external motivation to keep us focused on. And this is self-defeating. And the self-defeatingness is not a mistake. It's not a weakness. It's not a limited belief system. It's not a sabotage. It's a feedback from your physiology to let you know that you're not pursuing what's really meaningful to you not authentic. Because whatever your highest value is, your identity revolves around. My highest value is teaching. My identity revolves around teaching. The young boy who loves video games, he's a video YouTuber. (laughs) So whatever your highest value is, is your identity revolves around it and your epistemological knowledge is maximized around it. So you tend to filter your reality according to that highest value. And whatever information you're perceiving, it's filtered through and you Grab anything that's going to help you fulfill whatever that is. But you tend to have attention deficit disorder and things alone. You know, I, I'm not interested in cooking or driving. I've delegated those for 33 years and one for even longer, 45 years. I don't do that. I let that go. So anytime you're doing something that's high in your values, you're growing in self-worth. You're expanding space and time horizons. You're maximizing your productivity you have the most fulfillment, you feel you know yourself and you're being yourself, your identity is clear, your purpose is clear, you have more meaning, 
spontaneously inspired, you tend to give yourself permission to, to, as I said, to expand more accomplishment and you have more objectivity. Why? Because the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain, into the medial prefrontal cortex area and the frontal cortex, which is the executive center, the governing center, the gratitude center of life. And it governs the amygdala's response, which is impulse and instinct, which comes alive only when you're living by lower values, trying to, and you're unfulfilled and you look for immediate gratification to compensate. But when you're living your highest values and the, the forebrain is activated and the executive center is activated, it sends fibers down into the amygdala and calms and dampens down the distractions of impulses and instincts that normally distract us from being present. So we're more present. We're more self-governed. We're more self-masterful. We're more objective because we're willing to embrace pain and pleasure in the pursuit of what's meaningful to us. And that objectivity state is where we pursue challenges that inspire us, which helps our autonomic nervous system stay balanced, which helps the heart rate variability, which helps resilience and adaptability to whatever is changing in the environment, which allows us to be master of our destiny, not victims of our history, extrinsically driven. So the highest value is extremely pertinent for performance, pertinent for mastery, pertinent for high achievers. So I was just having dinner two nights ago with a guy who's got two gold medals with, with swimming back a number of years back, but he's, he's up in age now. But, and I had another um, individual that had was Mr. Universe recently um, that from the old days. He's been around. He's 86 now, but he was Mr. Universe twice. What's his name? And friends with uh, Earl Maynard. I know the he's name. A, he's also, yeah, he's also an actor and he's done world wrestling and he's been an amazing guy. He's a really amazing guy. One thing I found common to them, <clears throat> both of them, is they're clear on their mission. Hmm. They know what's priority. They stuck to it and they achieved. And they don't get distracted by opportunists or impulses or instincts. We were talking about when he's about to launch into the water on swimming. He said, if I look to my right or left, and I see the people on either side of me, I just lost the gold medal. I have to stay focused on my mission and not compare myself to any other human being. Because if I do, if I look up to him, I'll minimize myself and I'll be inauthentic. Or if I look down on him, I'll exaggerate myself and be unauthentic. And when you're inauthentic, you're disempowered compared to mastery of presence by being authentic. The magnificence of your authenticity is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself by comparison. And both of those gentlemen knew that. They both, because I asked them very pertinent questions, and they both knew that and knew that was the key to getting great achievement. Your autonomic nervous system, just like if you're bodybuilding, your autonomic nervous system is most objective and most balanced if you do that. But if you're not, if you're in the executive, if you're in the amygdala, you get into subjective biases as a survival mechanism. You skew your perceptions of reality, and therefore your physiology is not keeping current with reality. And you're then overshoot or undershoot in your muscle function. And your agonist and antagonist are not firing in grace. They're not synchronous. And they're not allowing you to have fluid movement. And you have higher probabilities of injury because you're having jury from within, a judgment from within affecting outward. There's a, there's a conversation going on in my mind right now around, you know, everyone listening, you know, thousands and thousands of people listening to this podcast saying, Okay, well, how do I, you know, I can determine my values. I can go to Dr. Martini's website and determine what I currently perceive to be my highest values. 
And the question that follows that is, well, how do I know that's real? And there's so many things distracting us in the world right now. I feel as though, and I'd love to hear because you're very experienced in this, I'd love to hear how someone knows they're on the right mission. Is it just because it feels um, effortless? If you have to ask the question, you're not. Totally. Yeah. So Because you'll know. There's, 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 there's some key indicators. You're grateful for what you're doing. You love what you're doing. You're inspired by the vision that emerges spontaneously out of your executive center when you're doing it. You're enthusiastically doing it. You're certain about your direction. There's no wavering. And you're present while you do it. And you feel it's impossible for you not to fulfill whatever that is, for you feel it's your destiny. You'll have tears of gratitude when you're present because mm. you feel like you're doing what you love. Have you met someone, so and maybe in a case in those Olympic athletes, have you met someone, and I feel this is me, this is why I'm asking, who has had multiple missions in their life, like different stages in their life? Yes. Yeah. I met a guy who, who passed away. I believe he made it to 102. He had four major career paths, each one lasting up to 20 or more years, some mm-hmm. of them. And um, he excelled at almost all of them. He didn't accept it. He had his own fashion line, his own financial industry. I mean, he was an amazing guy. Uh, but they had a, 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 I would say that your life's journey is a summation of all your destinies. There was a common thread. And his common thread, he grew up in the, he was in the Holocaust. So his common thread was to help the Jewish community and culture around the world upgrade and give them the greatest advantage he possibly could. So that was common to all of them. Every one of them was designed to help them financially, help them in their health, help them in their attractiveness and their opportunities and the way they dressed. It was all around a common theme, hmm. but your, your life's journey is a summation of your destinies. Your destinies is a summation of your hierarchy of values and your hierarchy of values are gradually changing when you're living congruently or cataclysmically changing when you're not. You get a smack and then you have a shift to go back to what's truly most important to you. But I had, when I was a young boy, I had baseball as my main focus from age four to 13. And I excelled in baseball. I did really well in baseball. And then from 13 to 18, surfing was the biggest thing. And I got to surf in some, you know, big waves, 40 foot waves and get in a book, book and some movies and things. And then I went on to Education, which is 50 years now. This is the longest one I've had, 50 years. I've been focusing on education. Now, my last one is probably going to be international sex symbol. I'm joking. <laughs> that, that, that was my, that was when Hugh Hefner passed away, I thought maybe that'll be my, my, my fourth one. But that's a joke. That's purely a joke. That's not true. <laughs> so interesting. So as, as we come back to this conversation on inner governance, and you brought up something that's really interesting, as you said, when you're when you're living in, you know, call it to paraphrase your prefrontal cortex, and you're doing the things you love, it's it's empowering both mentally and physically. And I'd like to have you talk about that a little bit because I think that's interesting to our audience. It, to me, it's a straight line to in their mind to like what I'm doing now and how that's going to take me to my goals. So literally connecting the line between living in your empowered. Um, pursuit of what you're passionate about, right? Living in your, in your values. And it's direct correlation to, to how you're feeling in, in your body, how you're performing in your body. I'd love to have you uh, just explain how that's working at a physiological level. Anytime you're doing an action that you feel is something you love, 
that's inspiring to you, that's spontaneous, that's truly linked to your highest value or is the highest value, uh, you're graceful, you dance, and it just seems effective and efficient. Mm. Fermat, Mach, and Mapertius, three great scientists, talked about the path of most efficiency. He said, light always travels the most efficient path and energy is used most efficiently. And when you're living by your highest value, you have your maximum efficiency. You also have the least amount of superiority and inferiority complex from judgments. You're less judging when you're in that. Anytime you do it, if you do a day that's that's a very high priority day that you really got on the agenda and stuck to it, knocked it out, you felt, man, I knocked it out of the ballpark today. I was on top of it. You're less likely to judge, less likely to be emotional. You're more likely to be adaptable and resilient. So you're most efficient, as resilient and adaptable as you possibly can when you're living by highest priority. Now, when that occurs, because you're objective, you're more reasonable, you're in your executive function, and you're in the forebrain where you have the most amount of inner neurons, which means you have the most probable balanced perspective. So if you have a, a stimulus response, like a deep tendon reflex, and somebody hits a hammer on your knee, you only have one nerve going to another nerve, and you have no inner neurons. The higher you go in the brain, the more there are inner neurons, and the more options you have, the more freedom you have, and the more probable, based on the sample size of inner neurons, of a balanced distribution. So you're thinking before you react. When you do, you have a graceful response, not a jerk response. So when you're under a high-stressed response, distracted, you'll tend to overshoot, undershoot, and have a higher probability of injuries when you're moving things and overshoots and undershoots. When you're cocky and exaggerating yourself, you'll tend to set too big a goal in too short a time frame. When you're shamed, you'll tend to set too goal, too small a goal in too long a time frame. Both are overshooting and undershooting. But when you're yourself, you set real goals in real time frame. And when you do, you gracefully follow the action steps that are strategically planned to achieve it. If not, you're impulsive. You're going you're gonna to burn out or bore in the process. And those are basically where we get injury. And the injury is a feedback mechanism to get us back into authenticity. The injury, which means a jury from within, a judgment from within, is a feedback mechanism to get us back to authenticity. When we're back in authenticity, which is our highest value, we have graceful movement. What's interesting is they found out that when you're living in the highest priority, the autonomic nervous system is balanced. The supercosmic nucleus balances. The hypothalamus which governs the autonomics, the supercosmic nucleus, which is also governing the circadian rhythms. Those things maximize their performance when you're in your highest value. They're most balanced, most resilient, most adaptable, least fearing the loss of the things you fantasize and seek with impulse, least fearing the things that you're trying to instinctively avoid fearing of gain of, and the more present you are. And what happens is the parasympathetic nervous system deals with flexors, and internal rotators, and the sympathetic deals with extensors and external rotators, and these come into balance, and the agonist and antagonistic muscles come into synchronicity, and you have graceful movement. So when you're actually grateful and has grace in your mind, your body is graced in its movement. Something you said there is, um, I feel like it's a it's a three day seminar in of itself. You said when you're cocky and you set goals that are too big for the time frame, or if you're lacking confidence, you set goals that are too small for the time frame. How does someone start to live in authenticity? How do I know that I'm being cocky or that I'm I'm uh, lacking confidence, right? And and then how do I get there to this this level place? Because I think I know a lot of people who are high achievers, 
uh, and I'm guilty of this myself at times is like setting too many goals. And I'm like, Oh geez, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm burning the candle at both ends to try to achieve these things. Uh, and I certainly know people who underachieve and, you know, set goals that are too small. Uh, well, again, if you have to ask the question, you're off center. Hmm. So you can set a goal on a piece of paper, write it, put the date you set it, the date you plan to accomplish it and the date you actually achieved it. If you achieved it after when you set it, you were cocky when you said it, or you didn't have a strategy that would allow you to achieve it in that time frame. But it's not having a strategy is a sign not being in the executive center because the executive center is the strategy defining center where you mitigate risks and come up with strategies. The purpose of the executive center in the forebrain is to change fantasies into true objectives, to take things that are not real to things that are real. Now, if you all do the opposite and you achieve it before you set it, you may have been minimizing yourself what you think you can accomplish. So you can just do a log on that and start looking at it and pay close attention to your physiology every time you're setting goals and the physiology when you're achieving them. And you can feel and get feedback from that to, to set real goals in real time frames. If, if you're sitting there and you see how you're going to do it and you're clear and lucid on the strategy, that's a sign you're in your executive center. That's a sign of authenticity. You've got clarity of vision. The, the executive center has fibers that go into the V5, V6 area of the acceptable cortex, which is a visual associative area. The moment you're authentic, you see a vision. Tears of inspiration come. When to wash the mind, you see it. You feel it's impossible for you not to fulfill it's done. It's like Michael Phelps when he's rehearsed, you know, a thousand rehearsals on his swim. It's done. He's just going out there now and doing the, to go through the actions. He's already present there. He already knows it. He's already prepared for it. So that's what happens. Your mind already is present. See, as long as we have future or past in our mind, we're not authentic. Because when we're authentic, we're present. There's no time. It's a timeless mind, ageless body moment, as Deepak would say. But as long as we're having a memory, we have skewed distortion of perceptions. Or if we're having memory or imagination, both of them. In the episodic memory and imagination studies of the brain, they know that if you are remembering something, and it's because your hippocampus has been valent by your amygdala, and there's a lopsided perception sitting on it, and if it's highly imaginative, and both of them are occupying your mind, and you can't get them out of your mind, you're not present. So if you're sitting there elated about this outcome, you're not present. If you're depressed about an outcome, you're not present. The fear of loss of that which you seek or the fear of gain of that which you're trying to avoid is a sign you're not present. So you spoke about the amygdala kind of hijacking the brain for, you know, to, to paraphrase. And I'm curious how much the history of someone and their trauma plays into someone's ability to tap into what they truly value, what they're truly passionate about, or if that in some way you know, that the, the constant amygdala-driven amygdala um, mindset just from, from either habit or, or stressful traumatic life can somehow inhibit somebody's ability to access what they're truly passionate about. My specialty, as you know, in the breakthrough experience is dissolving those illusions mm -hmm. of trauma. I always say there's nothing the mortal body can experience that the mortal soul can't love. And trauma is simply a selection of perceptions that you've chosen and held on to about an event that you think has got more drawbacks and benefits and the fantasy about how it should have been. And as long as you're holding on to the fantasy about how it should have been and the nightmare about how it was in comparison to it, 
you're not going to be present and you're going to have those impulses and instincts run your life and you're not going to be in the most great state, most present state. But you can take any trauma. I don't care what it is. I've taken, I mean, I could go a list right now of shocking traumas that I've gotten to help people with. And I've yet to see one that can't be dissolved. Post-traumatic stress is really a simple thing to dissolve. Deaths, suicides, rapes. I mean, all these are actually dissolvable if you take them a frame by frame. So no matter what the experience you can, it's a matter of asking the quality question that equilibrates the mind, that liberates the individual from the polarization of perception so they can actually get back into a poised state and then automatically go into their executive center the moment it's poised again. Mm-hmm. I just uh, sent off a, a thing for another podcast on neuroscience on just that topic to try to emphasize how important that is because most people just label something. I was traumatized and they give it a diagnosis, post-traumatic stress. And they, and it's just BS. It's BS. We have amazing resilience, amazing adaptability if we know how to ask the right questions. So it's not what happens to you. It's your perception, what you decide to do and how you act from it. So I can take something if you choose to say, we've all had it. We've all had situations we thought was terrible. And then a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we go back and go, oh, thank God that occurred. Well, why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process? We can ask questions, make ourselves conscious of the upsides to balance the downsides, liberate the thing and move forward immediately. I mean, within minutes. So I'm a firm believer of taking people that have been through so-called traumas and dissolving the trauma on the spot while they're shaking even. I had a guy, a woman that came to me in South Africa whose husband and son went off a cliff and dropped massive distance. I mean, it was like no way they're going to live. The son caught a rock on the way down, survived. The, the husband went a thousand feet. I'm right off a cliff, massive cliff. So she's sitting there and trembling and shocking. You know, just found out her husband just died. The psychiatrist brought him over to me to dissolve it right on the spot. And we cleared it in two and a half to three hours. We cleared it, boom, dissolved. She was able to function. And that next night she had, well, that night she had difficulty sleeping because she's used to having him sleep next to her. And so she had new memories associated, came back the next morning, cleared that when that was done, did not have any post-traumatic experience whatsoever, moved forward onto her life. So it's not what happens to you, it's your perception of it. And if you ask quality questions, you can become cognizant of both sides of an event, because there's always two sides. And if you're seeing it as traumatic, it's because you're conscious of the downsides and you're unconscious of the upsides. Just if you see terrific events, you're conscious of the upsides and conscious of the downsides. Both are, are incomplete awarenesses mindfulness is seeing both sides. So I just ask questions, hold people accountable to bring their counting sheet, their balance sheet back into balance, liberate those illusions of terrible or terrific, and allow people to get back into the poised state where their executive center governs and uses whatever experience they have into an opportunity. As you know, I've been to the breakthrough twice, and uh, I think it's just phenomenal. I think everyone listening should absolutely sign up and, and attend either online or in person, if you're still doing it in person. Um, and you walk through that exact process. And I don't know if you'd be willing to share a couple of the questions you may have asked in that scenario to give us perspective. Like when someone loses a, a partner or a child or something that is just feels like, you know, almost unforgivable or unforgettable, certainly. What, what is the, so I, I understand it's like learning to, boz, to balance the positive, right? And the negative. So what would be a question, an example of a question in that scenario where, where you would learn, you would allow them to bring the positive into, the, into their mind? Okay. First of all, uh, I'm going to develop this because this, this needs developing uh, on the grief process because most people are so indoctrinated by mm-hmm. an animal psychology about how you're supposed to respond in grief. My first 
uh, there were two things that led to me to have develop a new methodology on how to dissolve grief. One, when I was a teenager, I realized that when I lived on the streets as a teenager, that different people played out different family member roles in my life. And so what I thought was missing because I wasn't around my family, other people took it on and I was mm. resilient and adaptable to see who took on all the traits. So that was one thing that stuck in my mind from age 14. Then when I was 20, 21, I went down to El Salvador to surf for the summer. And um, I came back from the surf and I was walking down the street and two or 300 people were walking with colorful shirts and white and celebration. It looked like a parade. And I asked, Kipasa, what's happening, man? And he says, our mayor died. We're going down to the cemetery and we're burying him because he's freed from his body now. He's, a, he's like an eagle who can soar now. And we're celebrating his freedom from his body. And I'm going, whoa, that's different. Because I was used to, if somebody dies, you mourn, you wear black, you know, you, this kind of thing. And then when I saw that, I thought, hmm, this same thing called death has two sides. And then I started to explore at age 21 there. I started exploring what exactly is this thing called grief? And I started by 1984, I had developed a methodology, which I've taken over 4,000 people through the grief process, the death process, and dissolved it in three hours or less. Usually two hours or less. So first of all, there's only two forms of grief. And I hope everybody who's listening to this maybe writes this down. There's only two sources of grief that people can face. The perception of loss of that which you seek and the perception of gain of that which you are trying to avoid. Now, in the brain, that's the, in the amygdala. So grief is an amygdala response. It's not an executive response. It's an amygdala response. So we seek prey. We try to avoid predator. So prey is food. Predator is going to eat us. So if we, we, when we fear the loss of prey, we have starvation. So we fear, the, we fear starving because we die and fear being eaten. So grief is a byproduct of those two sources. I guarantee I've, I've, I've done this on TV. I've done it radio. I've done it under scrutiny, under universities. This is a science. So grief comes from the perception of loss of that which you seek or the perception gain of that which you try to avoid. Now, when you infatuate with somebody, when you infatuate with parts of them, you don't infatuate with all parts of them. You have things you like and things you dislike about people. When you first meet somebody, you could be infatuated. You think you're going to be all positive. But then after you be with them for a long period of time, you say, yeah, there's things you like and things you dislike. So when somebody dies, if you're infatuated with them and you're blind to the downside, you're going to have amazing grief. But if you have gone through the infatuation, come out on the other side and actually resent the person, whoa, when they die, you go, oh, finally, that guy's gone. When America had Soleimani in Iran get killed by Trump's team, they celebrated in America over the, the loss the, 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 you know, the killing of a terrorist, but there were 5 million people mourning the grief as a hero in Iran for that same man. They had him as a hero. We had him as a villain. So because we had him a villain, we didn't have grief. We had relief because they had him as a hero. They had grief, not relief. So it's the perceptions that are associated with the experience and the parts of the individual that's going to give you those responses. So what I found out is that when somebody is grieving, and I've taken thousands of people through this, when somebody's grieving, and I ask them, so what specifically are you missing about this individual that you admire that you now miss? Well, they don't say they're screaming, they're yelling, they're fighting with me, they're smelly, you know, poops, they're they're slobbery eating, their hair in the sink. They never give me a list of the things they just were frustrated by and dislike. They only give me the list of the things I like their hugs, their conversations. I miss the fantasies of what we were going to do together with our children. 
it's all fantasy infatuation based. It's amygdala based. And as long as they have that and they've denied the other side, they're going to be having grief over the loss of that part, which represents prey because they've denied the predator part. So what I do is I go in and make a list, an exhaustive list of every single thing they can think of that they admired about the individual that they've now perceived as lost. That's the first step. And I do it until they can't think of anything more. And then I ask them if something else comes up, make sure we get it down. We make an exhaustive list on that. And then the second thing we do is go back to what I did at 14. I found out that when something's gone, somebody else takes the place. They found out it's real or virtual. One or many, male or female, close or distant, real or virtual, alive or dead, something takes on that trait. Now, I've been doing this for since 1984, and I am absolutely certain this is true. People don't believe it until they see it live. You've seen it live and know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so I go in there and I said, all right, at the exact moment you perceive this individual no longer being able to provide that behavior and you now miss that individual from that moment forward to now, who emerged in your life to play out those roles and to deliver those reactions, those behaviors? And they first say, well, nobody. I said, look again. Okay, well, my sister started taking on part of my mom's role and my aunt came in and grandmother came up a bit. And my wife started kind of taking care of me like a mom. And my dad became softer and became more, did a little bit of mom and dad's role. And he goes, hmm, now I think about it. There's a lot of people that kind of took on those roles. Great. Let's keep doing it until the quantity is equal. And at first people, every week when I do this with people, they go, well, I don't know about that. And I'm, I just said, look again. Don't make anything up. Just look again. Don't get caught. Because if you infatuate with only thing, you're going to feel the grief. And you're going to be holding on to an addiction of who they were, which isn't who they are. It's your subconscious of infatuation where you're conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides. I want us to first find out those and who took it on. When they do it and it's quantitatively equal, they're already kind of going, whoa, I've got a new form of these behaviors in my life. Then I go and ask, okay, let's go to a moment when they're actually displaying that trait real time. Okay. What's the downside to you of that? Because every trait, action or inaction that a person displays or demonstrates has downsides and upsides. I don't want to deny the upside. I just want to look at the downsides because their generosity made you dependent. Their generosity made you less resourceful. Their generosity made you rely on them. Their generosity made you feel obligated and dependent on them. What's the drawbacks to that? We stack up the drawbacks equaling to the benefits. On each of those behaviors, all of a sudden, their, their, their grief is going down significantly. It's just starting to melt away because they realize, oh, there's just as many drawbacks as benefits of their behavior. And I was under an infatuation of that behavior. That's why I'm feeling a loss. And that the grief is actually a feedback to let you know that you're infatuated with people, not loving them. Because hmm. if you love somebody, you extract out space and time in your mind and you become present with them. So then I go and I go now on the new people that showed up to play those roles, go to the moment when they're displaying that. And how is that a benefit to you? And we stack up the benefits of the new people doing it. We stack up the drawbacks of the original individual doing it until there's just as many drawbacks as benefits because all traits are neutral until somebody with a subjective bias labels them good or bad. And then we go and take the trait we minimize relative to the original person. We lift it up with the benefits. When the benefits equal the drawback of that and they're flatlined, I can guarantee if you do that on every one of the traits, it's impossible to have grief. Impossible. I've done this so many times. I've, I've been challenged on television. I've been challenged on radio shows. I've done it live on different things. We've done it in a university where they did it and they did a protocol on it and they just couldn't believe that we dissolved it. And they followed them for 18 months. They didn't have grief. There's a science of grief. It's an absolute science. 
But what's interesting is it's too much of a billion to trillion dollar business, funerals, grief counseling, uh, you know, all that stuff is just a business. There's no reason why a person has to grieve more than three hours ever again on the planet. And people can't comprehend that until they see it. But the truth is, when you die, you don't want anybody grieving for the rest of their life. You right. want them to live their life to the fullest. I've not met one person who can look me in the eye and say, I want to have the people I care about grieving. Not one person can look me in the eye and say that other than a joking eye. But when they look at me and they go, no, the people I care about, I want them to live their life to the fullest. Yeah. I said, well, then let's do it. Let's thank them, feel present with them, be grateful for them, open a heart to them, feel love for them, close their eyes and feel their presence and not hold on to a fantasy who they are and then make a nightmare of our life and then have a false attribution bias on them. And uh, then we were sitting there in remorse. And that's that, that to me is not the way they would want you to live and nor would you want to live. And as prolonged grief syndrome causes cardiovascular, digestive systems, immune responses and health issues, it does not... There's absolutely no scientific evidence that you have to grieve. But repressing grief is not healthy, but dissolving it is. Hey everybody, just one more special announcement before we get kicked off. My great friend, Brian Johnson. If you've listened to Muscle Intelligence Podcast for any duration of time, you've heard me talk about Brian Johnson, who's been a previous guest on the show and is currently running one of the businesses that I'm most excited about in the world. His business is called Heroic. If you haven't heard me talk about Heroic in the past, you may have heard me talk about Philosopher's Notes or Optimize, now known as Heroic. So Philosopher's Notes started way back in 2006 as a summary website, ultimately of the greatest books of all time, the greatest wisdom condensed into a 10-minute video or ultimately a 10-page PDF, his five big ideas, which was a resource I used consistently for, gosh, it had to have been at least 10 years before actually having had the opportunity to meet Brian in person and hear his new mission. His mission is currently wielding technology. Brian is actually someone who's very experienced in technology to ultimately create an app specifically designed to help us move from theory to practice to mastery. Brian and the entire Heroic team are helping people like you and people like me step into the highest versions of ourselves. Heroic is a new app that helps you train to be the change you want to see in the world. It's a new social training platform built to change the world. And I am a huge fan. I've actually gone so far as to do Brian's 10-month coach training. So we have a 10-month project that is just so intensive that I actually went through and it's just phenomenal, like very, very deep, but very, very transformative. Brian has basically collected all of his wisdom, tools, and steps to mastery and placed into a single app. He's also taken all the mastery or all the wisdom that he's accumulated from so many amazing leaders in our society, current and past. Brian has spent the last several decades creating distill and distilling wisdom and philosophy from the world's greatest thinkers on topics like habits and productivity, sleep, nutrition, and fitness, creativity, and learning, willpower, and goal setting. And I tell you, it is an amazing, amazing resource. Head over to muscleintelligence.com slash heroic, muscleintelligence.com slash H-E-R-O-I-C, heroic, and get hooked up with 20% off. Now, this is not going to last forever. And I'll tell you what, if you're someone who's serious about changing your life or making the most 
of every day of your life. You're going to want to do this right now. Time passes us by. Mother, Mama time waits for nobody. So my suggestion is head over to muscleintelligence.com slash heroic. Take advantage of this discount right now. The code muscle will get you 20% off. And uh, let's all start changing our lives together. You'll see me in there taking action every day. I'm happy to share this stuff with you as well. I'll be sharing it on my social media page. If you don't already follow us on Instagram, go ahead and do that now. Get on follow, also follow on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, all those amazing places. Before we do that, muscleintelligence.com slash heroic. Take advantage of our amazing discount. Enjoy the rest of the show. While you're going through that, Dr. McGee, thank you. That was that was incredible. And I think everyone will start to see the picture. But while you were going through it, the the, the conversation around self-sabotage came up. And, and I'm curious if you have an opinion on that and if it's a similar process. Because I, I do work with a lot of high achievers. And many times there's a ceiling. I think you and I have talked about this, actually. There, there's, a, there's a perceived ceiling of like, hey, I get here and then I, and then I do something and screw it up. And then I get there again, I do something and screw it up. Is that a similar circumstance? Well, there's some overlap, but it's, it's a little different. See, most people don't understand the difference between success, failure, and a mission. So let me outline that. The second you think that you're successful and you puff yourself up with pride, you depurpose your mission. Yeah. Because what happens, you have what is called a licensing effect. I hope everybody looks up the licensing effect. If you go out and you eat... Uh, let's let, let's say you go out and work out. You do this incredible workout, and you really feel like, man, I man, I did it. I knocked it out of the ballpark. You automatically, if you feel proud and cocky, you'll automatically give yourself permission to go and overeat that night, drink some wine, take chocolate, sweets. You'll do something because you earned it. You think, and this is called the licensing effect. Anytime you're proud about something, you automatically give yourself permission to do something you're ashamed about hmm. because the pride is inauthentic and the shame is inauthentic, but they balance each other to make true self-worth. Hmm. The elevated self-esteem of pride and superiority complex and the depressed self-esteem of shame and inferiority complex together make up true self-worth. These are polarities. Wow. So the second you do something, you're successful, you automatically do low priority things, depurpose. And the second you think you fear your failure, you go back to high priority things and repurpose. So success, people who are going for success instead of a mission automatically go through cycles and hit plateaus. That's why we're not here to take credit or blame. If you're focusing on credit or blame, I said for years, take no credit, take no blame. Just keep focused on chief aim. The name of the game is thank you. I love you for being able to do what you love every day. So an, an individual is on a mission of building and accomplishing something is different than somebody that's doing it. And the thing, thing as they're getting close to it, that means they're successful. Success is basically a de-process, de you know, depurposing process. I have no interest in success. I'm not a, people ask me, how did you become successful? I'm not a man of success. I'm a man of a mission, a man on a mission, period. Yeah, that that's such a great explanation. And I feel like that. I feel like for myself, there's no such thing as like wins and losses. There's, it's like, it's just progress. It's like moving, moving a non-zero sum. A non-zero sum game is the key to building wealth. And a zero sum game is the, the key to living off derivatives and gambling with casinos. Like, you know, crypto is a, a zero sum game. Buying quality stock is a non-zero sum game because you're winning, the customer's winning, the product is winning, the shareholders, everybody's winning out of it. So the same thing in life, when you're on a mission, you're not into the idea of gain and loss. Charlie Munger has a great thing on, online. If you go and find it, a great line on talking about the difference between people and people on Wall Street and the people that him and Warren. 
him and Warham are not focused on how to win at the expense of somebody else, which is a mentality of the locker room, he says. He is interested on how he can be of service and make sure that all the people are winning in the game because that's sustainable. If you're cocky and self-righteous, you get narcissistic and you tend to project your values on the people and eventually they're not interested in doing business with you and you get humbled and brought down. And the second you get altruistic and give people exaggerated positions, you'll end up sacrificing your profits. So that one eventually says, damn it, I'm worth more than that. I deserve better than that. So all it's trying to teach you, everything that goes on in your life is trying to teach you how to be authentic. And when you live by your highest values, you're most authentic. That's why if you prioritize your life, you're not there. You transcend the need for gain and loss, transcend the need for success or failure. You're just a man on a mission or a woman on a mission fulfilling what's meaningful to you. And that's way more powerful than the illusions of the amygdala thinking I'm going to get a prey without a predator. Imagine if you're trying to be fit and you get a prey without a predator. You'll gluttony, you'll overeat, and you'll lose your fitness. And you'll increase the probability of a predator trying to look for you because you're fat and you got a lot of calories and you can't run fast. So overeating, ghrelin and leptin cycles are basically success and failure cycles. That's all they are. You're mm -hmm. exaggerating, then you're minimizing. You're going through yo-yo syndromes. That's the licensing effect. So if you get prey without predator, you don't have fitness. And if you get a predator without prey, you get emaciated and starve and have no fitness. But you put predator and prey together in a balance, an autonomic balance to get fitness. So a mission uh, based on the highest value with objectivity and pursuing challenges that inspire you instead of trying to avoid challenges, that's where the power is. That's where productivity is. That's where you're going to have performance. That's amazing. You're dropping gems today. So, so great. Um, tell me about a life mastery mindset. So a lot of our audience is, um, including myself. I think we're all often on a quest to find what, what we define as self-mastery, right? Whatever in each individual defines as self-mastery. So I think everyone may have a variable definition of that. And obviously living toward uh, your highest purpose, you know, self-mastery is within that. But I'm curious about your definition of a life, uh, life mastery mindset. I've been focusing on mastering my life since I was 18. Mm -hmm. So I'm 68 in a few months. So I've been doing it for 50 years. I asked, what is mastery? The, the reason I got inspired by this is I watched David Carradine on Kung Fu in 1973, when he had this master at the Shaolin Temple or whatever, and he, we called him the master. And I thought, cool, I'd like to be the master. So that's where the word came into my mind, mastery. So I first set out a goal to, I want to master my life. I go, okay, what does that mean? That was first, you know, it sounded cool, but what does it mean? As I went down that alley, I started realizing that I break life into seven areas. And different people use different models. This is not the right model, the wrong model. It's just a model. But I say that we have a spiritual quest, and that is having some inspired mission that's a power that we want to go after. Something that truly inspires us. It's a contribution on the planet. that's actually deeply meaningful to us. That's spiritual to us. And whatever our highest value is, is our spiritual mission. The next one is waking up our genius and our mental capacities to come up with original ideas that serve human beings on this planet and waking up our creativity. That's a, that's a power in our mind. This is like Elon Musk doing something amazing or uh, Bill Gates going and creating some new software or, or whatever it might be, or a piece of art. You know, I, I just got contacted from the son of Picasso the other day, which is going to be a client. So I was like, whoa, that's a cool one. 
right? His father was like a genius, right? And then he was there. The third one is vocational mastery, where you actually master the art of sustainable fair exchange, doing something you can't wait to get up in the morning and do in a way that serves where other people can't wait to get up in the morning and get it. And the mastery of that is, again, the path of mastery. Then the next one is wealth mastery, where you're having your money work for you. You're not working for it. And you're going to work not because you have to, but because you love to. I don't have to work. I do it because I love to. And people go on the, on the ship here. They go, why do you work? You know, you're, you're, because I love doing this. It's like, I don't have anything else I'd rather be doing than teaching, researching, and writing. That's what I do. I've delegated everything else. So I only do that. The next one is having love and intimacy with somebody that's meaningful. And that, that's not the storybook little box on the prairie, you know, in a suburb, little house or whatever necessarily. It's whatever it means to you. I, I look at everybody as part of my family. Everybody around the world. I live in a big friggin' house and everybody's part of family. I got a genetic family and a mimetic family, an extended family and a real, you know, biological family. Mm-hmm. It's all family to me. And loving that to me is, uh, is family dynamics and mastering the ability to have equanimity within um, myself and equity between myself and all the people I care about. And intimacy is having pure reflective awareness where you're not too proud or too humble to see what you see in others inside yourself. And you realize that everything you see is, is they, they're not worth putting on pedals or pits they're worth putting in your heart. To me, that's mastery. Then social mastery is living by priority, exemplifying an authentic pathway, delegating lower priority things, communicating what's inspiring to you as a cause and, and a calling in a way that has a movement of people that synchronize with that, that want to help you fulfill that. That's a humanitarian cause. That's a social leadership and executive mastery in that area. And then physically, it's the performance at maximum, it's a maximum efficiency and performance at whatever you're going to do, whether it's in sport, whether it's in beauty, or whether it's just daily function. You know, you may want to work in the garden and do a fantastic garden. It may be it. Or it may be me. I'm doing this all day long. I love doing this. And I go from early in the morning to early in the morning sometimes doing this. But it's performing at its peak and not living to eat, but eating to live, to perform and function to perform and have self-governance. If you have something really, really important coming up in the future, you're, you eat totally different than if you have nothing happening. You're just going to, I mean, think of when most people will overeat and blow it and drink and party on a Friday and Saturday, but not on Sunday when they got something meaningful to do on Monday. So if you fill your day with high priority at meaningful things, you will perform in your diet, perform in your exercise in a whole nother level. That's why meaning is the thing that distinguishes us from the animals. Now, to me, mastery is all seven of those areas. When a woman is looking for a man, she's looking for somebody who's fit and, and, you know, nice abs, nice jaw, nice face, nice smile. If they were to have a baby with that, they would make make sure they could look at that baby and go, go, wow, that's cute. Not something, ooh, I don't want to look at that. They're looking for something that's fit. They're looking for somebody who's intelligent. They're looking for somebody who's ambitious. They're looking for somebody who's got resources, somebody that really wants to be with them, somebody that's socially savvy, and somebody that's inspired by some mission. That's what people are looking for. And so mastery is the empowerment of all seven areas of life and the exemplification of what potential possibilities. Aristotle said, actualizing our potential in all those areas. And to me, that's what I've spent the last 50 years of my life, researching and studying the people who have mastered all those areas and how to do it and try to disseminate that. That's why I try to do that at the break too in all the programs I do. Try to help people gain the, the principles and methodologies that will stand the test of time to achieve that. There's a lot to unpack there. And as you say, these are your seven areas. And there, there is room for areas that maybe other people 
choose to prioritize? Or fit into those areas. Some people put travel and see the world. I mean, I, I see that too. I want to go to every country on the face of the earth. I've spoken to 170 countries now. Still wow. got 50 to go. So I'm still cranking on that. But but the, the, the thing is, is that whatever it means to you is your self-mastery. Whatever is true to you. But my observation of human beings, they want to go and empower those areas. They, and they may put another little component in one of those areas, or they may have their own extra area. Whatever it is, whatever is deeply meaningful and inspiring to you that you're dreaming about doing, my experience is the second you achieve it, you keep adding to it. It just keeps growing. So what piece of advice, Dr. Martini, do you have for people who, whether unconsciously or consciously, make themselves, put themselves in the position of the victim of circumstance in the world, right? So the last, gosh, probably since the beginning of time, but certainly uh, relevantly for the last two years, there's been a lot of um, new developments in the world, we'll say, right? Politically and otherwise. And uh, it seems that, I mean, this could just be my observation. It seems that more people are placing blame outside of themselves rather than taking ownership for their life. And I'm curious if you have a thought or a piece of advice for people who tend to just take on the victim mentality and point fingers outside of themselves. False attribution bias is common when you're in your amygdala because you need that to survive. Mm -hmm. You have to assume that's a predator, blame, that's a prey, credit. The brain, the, the, the body automatically does that. Epictetus, the philosopher, said it really nicely, and I, I could paraphrase it. At first in life, in your, on your journey, you start blaming other people. As you go further on your journey, you start blaming yourself. And when you've finalized your ver journey and you're a now master, you don't blame anybody. There's nothing to blame. You've discovered the hidden order in your apparent chaos. But at first, you're sitting there disempowered, thinking with credit blame systems. You're fantasizing about a hero to save you. And you're attracting a villain to make you grow up. <laughs> as long as you're addicted to support, you attract a challenge to make you break your addiction so you can finally grow up because maximum growth occurs the border of support and challenge. And so when you blame things and give credit to things, false attribution bias keeps you from owning what you see in them inside yourself. I believe it's in Romans 2.1 and in the biblical writings, it said that whatever, whenever you blame somebody, just know that whatever you're blaming, it's a reflection of you. You do the same thing. And so when you finally own what you see in them, you blame them, then you blame yourself, and then you realize, oh, you ask, what's the benefit of what they've done? In the breakthrough experience, when I do the Demartini method, I ask, what specific trait, action, inaction do you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that you despise most, that you want to blame them for, that you have a false attribution bias on, and you're going to say, they cause me pain? Then you ask that and get down specific in what actually is their behavior. Then you go, all right, now go inside yourself. Go to a point, moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating the same behavior to somebody else. Where was it? When was it? Who is it to? And who perceived you that way? And don't stop doing that until you own what you see in them inside you 100% to the same degree, quantitatively and qualitatively. The moment you do, you stop the blame on them and you now have blame on them and you. And then you go in there and find out what's the benefit to you of them doing that. Go to a moment when they did that. How did it serve you? And you stack up the advantages and benefits. Instead of having the wizard of the ages with the aging process, you find it right now by looking. And when you find the benefits to you, you realize, wow, thank you. And then if you go and find out the benefits and when you did it, you go, thank you to yourself. And then you have nobody to blame. So you start out blaming others, then you blame yourself, and then you blame nobody. Because you finally realize that if there was nothing to blame, nothing to give credit to, 
just something that's a reflection of something that you already have. I always say at the level of the essence of the soul, nothing's missing in us. At the level of the existence of the senses, things appear to be missing in us. And anything we're too proud or too humble to admit we see in other people is deflected and it's disowned and it's our disempowered state. When we own them all and realize we're hero and villain, we're the saint and the sinner. We have all those behaviors. We have little to judge in other people. And then we're now ready to master our life. The breakthrough changed my life, and particularly in, in the sense of my relationship with my parents. So I went through, and with myself, and I went through this, the Demartini Method with my mom and my dad and my sister and myself. And since that time, literally, it's, it's wiped away any uh, animosity, any anger, any uh, really, really emotion. Yeah. yeah, it's just gone. There's nothing to blame. Yeah. yeah I always yeah. say that if you're having to say, I forgive you, or having to say, I'm sorry, you haven't completed the wisdom, you're not there yet. Because you're yeah. still caught in the moral hypocrisies. Moral hypocrisies run society by politics and religion. And they basically impose an idealism about how we're supposed to be one-sided people, which is unobtainable. As the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So we go around and we're trying to be one-sided people. We can't. I'm not a nice person. You support me. I'm a nice pussycat. You challenge me. I can be mean as a tiger. I'm a human being with both sides. So to label me more nice than mean or more mean than nice is delusional. But to understand that I'm a human being and you support my values, you're going to get nice out of me. You challenge my values, you're going to get tough, tough person out of me. I'll challenge you back. So I'm not a nice person. I'm not a mean person. Those are labels. They're inevitable labels we put on people that have no meaning when you get to the mean. Sounds like you situational. Mean, you realize it's, yeah, it's situational. So the real truth is I'm all the above. And I would say, no matter what you say about me, it's true. <laughs> I'm, 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 I can, if, when I went through the Oxford Dictionary, I found 4,628 individual traits and behaviors that people can display in, the, in that big dictionary. And I found every single one of them in me. Kind, cruel, nice, mean, open, closed, honest, dishonest. I found every freaking one of those traits inside me. And when I finally realized that all those traits serve, and there's a time and place for everything under the sun, as Ecclesiastes used to say, then you have the wisdom of self-mastery. Because you're not going to have self-mastery trying to get rid of half of yourself. You'll never love yourself down there. You'll only love yourself when you love both sides of yourself and other people and life and your goals. Embrace both sides. How much time do you spend a day reading? When I started to learn to read when I was 18 years old, and I finally got to start to get the hang of it, I started reading 18 to 20 hours a day. I mean, I was like insane reader because I didn't know how to read till I was 18. But today I spend much of my time doing podcasts, filming, uh, movies, uh, live seminars or whatever. While I'm doing that, I may not be reading. But if I'm not doing that, I'm reading and writing. Do you think your childhood of not being able to read was part of your, the formation of your mission? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, was, I had a speech impediment from age one and a half. I had to go to, to speech pathologist from one and a half. So I had speaking problems. I had reading problems. I had learning problems. I was a street kid as a teenager because I couldn't read. I didn't read till I was 18. Uh, absolutely. But I, uh, I use those to my advantage now because those, those are my advantage today. Yeah, it's funny that my audience will know this. But so when I was a child... I was obese, I had a learning disability and a speech impediment. And then I went, yeah. on, to, I went on to make a living in, on stage in my underwear. So obviously overcame obesity. I, I'm a public speaker and an educator. So it's funny how we yeah. kind of use those things in youth. 
those challenges. Well, our voids, our voids determine our values. So that's the perfect thing. Our voids determine our values. Telling me what we, we perceive is most missing will tell you what's important. Anything we judged in ourselves or others become voids that drive our values. I'm going to think about that. Yeah. So is that, is that voids? Because let, let's, say, let's say you're infatuated with somebody and you minimize yourself and you're too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you. That's a void. You feel empty because every time you judge, you have emptiness. Mm. And every time you have love and have equanimity, you have fulfillment. So if you're then putting yourself up on a pedestal and looking down on somebody, you're too proud to admit what you see in them inside you. And so now you're missing that part. So all your missing parts come from things you're too proud or too humble to admit you have. So if you felt like you were less than or bigger than or something, anytime you compared yourself to other people and didn't see equanimity and equity, those are voids that drive values that determine it. And your highest value is the most efficient, effective pathway to fulfill the greatest amount of voids with the greatest amount of value. So when somebody finds the highest value, that's when they most efficiently and effectively dissolve the voids of unfulfillment and make them fulfilled. I'm going to have to re-listen to all that and ponder it for a while. I'm going to meditate on that. That's, that's a very powerful thought, very powerful thought. And do you think that that forms or that's present throughout life or does that form primarily as a child where you're trying to fill your voids? Well, your formative years are pretty impactful, but that doesn't mean that that's the starting and only point because some people have major cataclysmic events that are later in their life that, that form that. Uh, some people, I had a gentleman who had, he was uh, 24 when I met him and he was married for two years and his wife died of cancer in her 20s of breast cancer. Hmm. And he felt he was hopeless and helpless and couldn't do anything about it. And he drove himself to try to find the solution to that. He became a chiropractor, an osteopath, a medical doctor, and an oncologist. <laughs> and still to this day, is focusing on cancer. He didn't have those voids when he was young. He didn't. It, it, it came when he got married to the woman that he was, he was he believed he was in love with. All of a sudden, that became his mission. Fascinating. Dr. Martini. I'm very respectful of your time. That was absolutely phenomenal. And I think everyone listening is going to want to buy your books, take your courses, and certainly head over to drdmartini.com and do the values determinant test, which you so graciously give to us for free. Uh, is there any other messages you'd like to share with our audience in parting? No, just, just know that the magnificence of who people are, the magnificence of their authentic self is more powerful and more magnificent, more fulfilling than anything you'll ever impose on yourself as a fantasy. So don't waste your time on fantasies. Don't waste yourself time on anything that's low in priority. Prioritize your life. Find out what's really most important. Stick to that. Delegate the rest. Give yourself permission to do what you love and exemplify that for other people and watch what happens. You'll, you're, all seven areas of your life are about to be expanded. Do you do a course on, on um, life organization and delegating? Because I think that's a skill that most people don't get. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I do. It's yeah, important. Definitely do. In fact, I have a new, I got to show you, I got a new book. <laughs> I have three new books coming out uh, that I've just finished up. Or I'm in the final edits on it. Let's see if I can find it here. There we go. One is called the, Your Seven Secret Treasures. Yep. The other yep. one is called The Resilient Mind. And the other one is The Productivity Factor. Nice. And The Productivity Factor is all about exactly that, how to maximize your productivity and performance. What's the resilient mind? The resilient mind is about how to live congruently with your highest values, bring objective. When you're neutral and objective, you don't feel the loss of the infatuations. You don't feel the gain of the resentments. You're just present. And there you can adapt to anything. I was in Tehran 
And I was doing a program to 22 ministers of state in that, in that country. Uh, the president is the one that asked me to do it. When I went in there, we had a whole day under how to have um, efficiency, you know, what do you call uh, not having, um, when something is changing, change management, how to do it more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And we did exactly that. We showed him that maximizing engagement according to highest values and making sure people are living by the highest values is what maximizes the ability to adapt to change. And so we spent the day doing that. It was mind blowing. I showed him how to take anything that was changing in their life and how to adapt to it. Because there's nothing out there except perceptions. You change your perceptions, balance the perceptions, you are completely adaptable. And your distress level. I always say that distress symptoms are feedback mechanisms saying that you're not being authentic, not being objective, not being true to yourself, and it's trying to get you back there. All the symptoms in your physiology, psychology, sociology, and all areas of your life are trying to get you authentic where you maximize your potential. It's a feedback. When, you're, when you see that, you're grateful for your life. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be definitely visiting your site again, redoing my values factors, and I'll be, you'll see me on courses soon. Are you doing them live again, or is it all going to be remote? Because I know you're enjoying them, doing them digitally. Some, some are still remote. We're looking at some uh, live ones. We're going to test them out. We just did a survey in London uh, just this week to see if, if there's a, a big desire to do it live or to do it still online. And we were surprised. We thought everybody wanted to go online. I mean, live again. Yeah. And it still wasn't as high as we expected. So we went, okay. Uh, we were planning on doing one in July, but the, the numbers weren't as high as we expected. The ratio is still, we still like it online. I'm so, I'm so such a subversive learner. Like I want to be there. I want like, I need to be in the room and like, I hate sitting on zoom. Like we do, I do this so much. I'm like, I'd rather be there in the room engaging and I'd, I'd pay to travel and that's yeah, personal preference, but hopefully you continue doing some live at least, at least a couple of times a year and I'll be there. Yeah. Well, we're thinking about doing one maybe in Toronto and LA. So I'm, we'll, we'll see. I'm in Toronto right now. So if, you, if you're here, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll, we'll see about maybe doing it in Toronto. Wonderful. Dr. Martini. as I say, I, I'm incredibly grateful for you and your mind. And uh, you've got a fan in me and a supporter. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Enjoy. All right, ladies and gents, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining me. Ben Bukowski here on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I have incredible passion for deciphering and decoding what really drives excellence? I have a personal passion to achieve my personal excellence and hope that I can support you in achieving yours. I think my gift in this world is, I was thinking about this the other day, is like what sets apart people from that succeed from people who don't? And for me, there's never been a, I can't, right? There's like, there's this mindset of what do I have to do to make it happen? And if you think of that and you apply that to anything, it's like, I want to build muscle. Okay, well, it's not that I can't. It's that you maybe don't have yet, but what do I need to do to make it happen? If I want to make $100 million, what do I need to do to make it happen? There's no stopping point in my mind. It just simply doesn't exist. And I find that really fascinating. And I'm looking for these people who are taking their stopping point well beyond me and well beyond everyone else in the world. So these people that are really pushing the boundaries and the limits of human capacity, human potential, that's really fascinating to me. Often you'll have, often hear me say something like, I really am fascinated with people who begin where other people end. Not really, if you could summarize what I do and what I aspire to learn about, it's that. It's like, how do you unlock new levels of human potential? So if you see interest in the guests that I bring onto the show, you'll find that commonality amongst them. It's just unlocking 
something deeper within us, something in your soul that you all know that you're capable of. You all know you're capable of something greater. One of my favorite quotes that I quote often is, our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we're powerful beyond measure. And I think there's definitely a fear of like, what would happen if I really push something? You know, maybe I would die, right? Maybe I would succeed. Wouldn't that be interesting? What would people think of me then? Do I, maybe I don't feel adequate enough. I don't feel good enough to succeed. All these things that are these conversations we're having in our mind, consciously or unconsciously holding us back. And one of my great passions in life is decoding this and unlocking it for me and unlocking it for you. I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that you can do anything. If anyone in the whole world can do it, so can you. And I hope you guys think that about yourself and you know that about yourself. And I'm here to support you in unlocking that because ultimately we are all capable of anything. Yet sometimes we put roadblocks in our own way, don't we? Ladies and gents, thanks for being here. And another special shout out to our amazing sponsors for today, Mass Zymes. Our friends over at Mass Zymes, our friends over at bioptimizers.com are hooking us up. So if you guys go to masszymes.com slash muscle free, muscle the word free, one word, you will get hooked up with a free bottle of Mass Zymes, a product that I personally pay for. And I literally always have bottles on hand. I have this small travel kit of things that I always have with me. And Mass Zymes is one of those things. And maybe one time we'll do a podcast on the things that I always, always have with me to travel. And another amazing shout out for today, another one of our great sponsors is our friends over at Heroic, our friend Brian Johnson, muscleintelligence.com slash heroic, H-E-R-O-I-C. We'll get you hooked up with 20% off to their incredible life transforming website. And it's a social network ultimately designed to help you move from theory to practice to mastery in anything you want to do. Brian likes to frame around energy, work, and love as being the three primary pillars for our lives. Ladies and gents, thank you for listening to me ramble. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And thank you for supporting our amazing sponsors. As always, have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love and push beyond your comfort zone. Let's go. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.